Here's the opening scene. A man sits slumped in a drought-stricken desert plain. The wind blows and the sand swirls. Cradled in his arms is his dying daughter. Together, they're the last of their people. Leaving his daughter for a moment, he stands to pray. Holding the image of his God around his neck, he calls out for help. No help comes, and his daughter dies. Death tragically broke the love between a father and a daughter. Now, he struggles to crawl to a previously hidden oasis. And there, in the middle of the oasis, he finds his God feasting, laughing, partying. Bowing to pay honour, he asks why no help came. Your life is suffering in service of the gods, is the reply. In this world, the gods do not serve their humans. Change of scene. A woman sits in a chemotherapy treatment ward. She undergoes treatment, but trusts her strength will beat cancer. Time passes, and it's clear that her power is no match for the disease. She needs the help of a higher power, the power of the gods. Thor's magic hammer, Mjolnir, gives her hope. God-like power, love, and a team of gods, however, is no help. She is dying. Death seems sure to also snuff her love for life, for work, everything. And try as he might, even Thor, aided by his new axe, Stormbreaker, and I don't know who made that name up, growing in power, self-control, and with rediscovered mojo, even Thor is impotent. Environmental disaster, dying children, cancer, impotent deities. Here's the message. There's nothing there to help. It's a waste of time if you're putting your trust in something. You're all alone. This is where Taika Waititi's Thor, Love and Thunder, leaves us. So I'm sorry for any spoilers, but I trust that you've already gone to see Thor, Love and Thunder. But Taika Waititi leaves us distracted for a moment with all the fights and all the special effects, but he leaves us still needing rescue, still searching, still looking for God. And this quote uh, by a guy called Mortimer Adler, I think, sums up what Taika Waititi is getting at, but what we also need to be aware of, and that's what we're starting to look at in this series. The whole of human life is affected by whether people regard themselves as supreme beings in the universe, or they acknowledge a superhuman being whom they conceive of as an object of fear or love, a force to be deified, or a lord to be obeyed. Now, the gods of Thor are not worthy of faith or confidence, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead means the God of the Bible is powerful and worthy of believing. And that's what we're investigating today and in this series. So please join me and let's pray again. Let's ask for God's help as we're together now with him and with each other. Father, thank you that you raised Jesus from the dead. Father, thank you for that proof that judgment is coming. And thank you for this warning that we need to turn back to you now to honour you and trust you. Father, you've shown yourself to be the creator through creation, 
the Almighty in judgment, the Father in resurrection. And thank you that you've raised Jesus to be your everlasting son and you will raise us to be with him as we trust in him too. Please help us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, one of the things I love about the, the service here at St Matthew's is that we actually make a statement about belief. And as much as it's an individual affirmation, it's also a corporate affirmation. And we do it every week in the words of a creed. And the word creed comes from the Latin um, credo. And even in, in Italian, credere is the word to say, um, to believe, I believe. And the, the creeds were developed in the past for people preparing for baptism um, in the early centuries of the Christian church. And they helpfully learned a summary of what Christians believe. And off the back of each of the sentences, they would, they would go deeper into what the sentence was actually expressing. One of these versions became accepted as the Apostles' Creed and includes the essential teaching of the 12 apostles, Jesus' earliest followers. Um, it's that apostolic gospel faith that Christians believed and trusted, and it was into that apostolic faith that Christians were and are baptised. And thanks to Andrew Vella's research, I got this out of the, the front of the booklet for the life groups, um, the earliest version that we know of uh, dates back to about 200 AD, but the version that we say each week it dates back to about 800 AD. Now, it's important to be clear at the start, we're not actually studying the Apostles' Creed, but we're studying the Bible to see where these beliefs come from. And the big reason why to do any of this um, is what we're kind of going to be seeing this morning in Acts chapter 17. The big reason why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, this is not the first thing that's talked about in the Creed, but as we'll see also in Acts chapter 17, it's the reason why Christianity actually gets started, and it's the grounds of our faith. And it's also there that we do see elements of God being Father and Almighty and Creator. And that's the, the phrase that we're starting off with today. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. Before we get into Acts 17, I wanted to reflect just a moment with you on how massive that, that first sentence is and what are some of the implications of it. Um, when we say we, we're kind of acknowledging that, that we exist. So we're identifying ourselves in that moment, um, and, but we're identifying ourselves as a, as a collective. Secondly, we say we believe. You might have heard of Descartes' statement, Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. So I, I, have, an, I have a knowledge of my own existence because I, I'm thinking, which tells me that here I am. I know I'm an entity. And the believing part is really important for us to consider because what we think shapes our identity. And the way we understand ourselves through our believing comes out in our living. Okay, so what you believe, what goes on in your mind actually comes out in your life. And then as a church community, what we believe together comes out in our living together. We believe in God. So just quite simply, we don't believe in ourselves. Okay? So we acknowledge that we're dependent on God. We believe in him. But which God? What is that God like? And Don Carson in the New City Catechism is quoted as saying this, God, for some, is an inexpressible feeling, 
or it's the unmoved cause at the beginning of the universe, or it's a being of full transcendence. But we're talking about the God of the Bible, and the God of the Bible is self-defined. And that's why we're going to keep looking at the Bible together. We believe in God the Father. Now, here it gets really interesting, because the word Abba was a very intimate word that a child would say to their earthly father. It was certainly not something that would ever get said of the Almighty. But Jesus first used the term in Gethsemane when he is praying to his father. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 talks about how we can be children of God by faith in Christ because the Spirit then comes to us, unites us with the Father. We're adopted into the closest of relationships in Christ with the Father. Amazing. And even more amazing when we put Father together with Almighty. We believe in God the Father Almighty. El Shaddai. The God who has revealed himself as the Lord, the I Am, and the Almighty Powerful One. Powerful in rescue, powerful in sheltering his people. And if you want to reference that, have a look at Psalm chapter 91, 1 and 2. The Almighty and the Lord is the creator of heaven and earth. We read that, didn't we, in Genesis chapter 2. And that concerns us. His mind alone, through his word, brought everything into existence, out of nothing. The ground beneath our feet is what he created and he sustains. We are dependent and exist within the world that he made, and the world works to his will, lived under his word for his worship. Okay, so that's, there we are. I could stop here. I'm not going to stop here, but if you want to switch off for the rest of the time that I'm speaking, uh, you might have heard enough that these are massive, massive things that are being said. And they stand in contrast to anything else that anybody else has ever said about God. And that's why we want to understand them. So we see this in Acts chapter 17. Um, I did like Joy's pause, actually, in her reading and her reflection, that Athens was a place where they sat around and spoke about ideas, and I don't know, Joy, if you had in your mind, but it certainly made me think that you were referencing our society today, which is kicking around a whole bunch of different ideas. And in fact, that is what we are like, isn't it? We are constantly trying to understand our place in the universe. Where did we come from? What does it mean? But there's a lot of confusion in Athens and also fear. And what was the fear? All the Athenians were trying to cover all their bases to understand all the gods that existed in order to protect the city of Athens. And they had an altar to an unknown god just in case they had forgotten one or more gods who would then be angry that they'd forgotten them and curse and destroy the city. So Athens was a place that was really quite confused and fearful because they had not worked it all out. I reckon there's a bit of that in Canberra, a marketplace of ideas, people relentlessly searching for meaning, working to establish what's true and what's not. And right now, the pendulum is swinging through diversity and non-discrimination. And it's just what's always been happening. <sighs> but it changes all the time. 
confused and confusing, but people still searching an afterlife, and that's what I experienced in my time as a funeral director's assistant. Through all the funerals I sat through, people were still wanting to acknowledge that there was going to be something, but it seems like the best that we can come up with is what Thor, love and thunder, leaves us with. Maybe there's something there, but the best of what's there can do nothing for us. Now, in comes Jesus and the biblical God. (laughs) And Paul says the biblical Christian God is three things off the basis of knowing him in Christ. God is creator. He is almighty in judgment. He is the father in resurrection. And here's the reason to trust him. He's the only one who has broken the cycle of death. (laughs) And he's proved that by raising Jesus to life from the dead. So from Acts chapter 17, the biblical Christian God is the God of creation. He is the universal creator of all things and all people. So you want to just cast your eyes back down. Acts chapter 17, and I'll just start at verse 22, just to get us back into the frame. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So he's quite provocative. (laughs) He's making them listen. Um, For some, this would be a good thing because they really want to know. For others, it would be offensive because they think they know. And then he goes on, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. So he's kind of... He's putting all the things that he's seen in the Athenian city in their place. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Why? God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So the God of the resurrected Jesus made the world and everything in it. It depends on him. He is Lord. He rules over it. So he decides about it and us. He's not contained. You can't box this God up. He's not served. He's not needy. But he gives everything life. Um, And you'll find a good summary of that in the first of the 39 articles that the Anglican Church um, has as its fuller doctrinal statement. And Andrew has helpfully put that in the back of the booklet as well for life group study. I'd encourage you to take one even if you're not in a life group um, as you leave this morning. And from Adam, he's made all people, as per the Genesis account. This is, what, this is what Paul is saying. He's made all people for his purposes. Even under the curse, as people spread out across the face of the planet, God's purposes are being worked out. And what are they? Inhabit within the boundaries he sets to seek and know him because this 
massive, powerful, universal creator God is relational. And even the pagan poets, they say it. Our being and our life are in him. We are his offspring. And it's so good because it helps us to understand our purpose. Through bearing his image, we reflect God's relationship as Trinity and we honour him as God. He gives us life. We depend on and serve him. And I'm reminded here of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which has been a big part of our recent series on Romans and has been really helpful for me to understand what I'm on about as a Christian. In view of God's mercy, because he's a relational God, he wants us to live for him, knowing him, being transformed and renewed by our minds changing to understand his grace in Christ. So he is the God of creation. He is the creator. I'm not. You are not. I must trust him. You must trust him. Second point. God's power over creation is complete and enduring. He decides over us. He is the God of judgment. Okay? So here I'm looking at verses 29 to 31. Acts chapter 17, verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. So Paul's saying... I've told you about the creator God, but don't believe it just yet because I've got some more to say. Now he's saying, let me tell you about the judging God, the God who is almighty. And like I mentioned just in my kind of brief intro to the sentence of the creed that we're looking at this morning, this is referring back to when God describes himself in the Old Testament as El Shaddai. And you can look at that um, in Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, where God says, I revealed myself as the Almighty to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And the contrast in Acts chapter 17 brings out what this almightiness of God looks like and what it means. On one hand, we've got human thinking and belief as though humans are independent of any power of God. In Athens then, and for us now in different ways, which I'll talk about a little bit towards the end, we think the divine being is like gold and silver and stone. And Paul says it's just your human design and skill that has tried to craft these things or express these things to create images that are just amplified versions of ourselves. Or, or the best thought that we can kind of capture in a statue, at least as far as the Athenians are concerned, and then worship. Um, when we think about it reasonably objectively, it's a crazy kind of a thing to do, and it's genuinely ignorant. Um, I'll paraphrase this, but you might like to look up later. Isaiah chapter 44, verses 13 to 17 because it's there where God, through Isaiah, is basically teasing people who make idols. Uh, what he says is, the craftsman goes out um, to chop down a tree, 
And he brings it back and measures it up. And he uses some of this to make an idol that he then says, I'm going to worship you, help me out. And with the rest of the wood that he doesn't use to make this idol or this statue, he builds a fire to cook his meal. <laughs> and Isaiah saying, this is just absurd. How can anyone actually invest any power in something that is the work of their hands? And that's what Paul is saying. So he says, on one hand, you've got all these things that are just a projection of yourselves, but here's the contrast. Times are changing. He says, but now. In the past, the true God of the Bible overlooked these false gods. He overlooked that ignorance of creating them. But now he establishes his power and authority. Now he shows himself as, as almighty in two ways. Firstly, in the preaching now, commanding people to turn away from the lie of the idols, to repent, and then in that just judgment on the coming day when he will judge. And look how universal that is. Verse 31, the first part. He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He will judge the world. <laughs> Complete, entire. This has already occurred um, in, in a comprehensive way in the Exodus. Do you remember when God called his people out of Egypt and as he called them out, as he rescued them out, he was judging the Egyptians and their gods and basically showing in, in a moment of absolute power, these other gods are nothing. They are nothing. I will show myself to be the Almighty in this act of judgment. And it's so good that God would judge. And it's so good that God actually brings justice. Because it says that there is wrong and there is right in the world and that, that will be determined. It's so good for us. Because living with self-determined chaos as everything keeps swirling around in human history is just confusing and discouraging and ultimately self-defeating as we keep trying to make up rules for ourselves that can't take us into eternity. And what God says is, unlike, and another spoiler for Thor, the vagueness of the image at the end of that movie regarding eternity and its powerlessness, what God through Paul is saying is, you, you know what you will see? You know who you will see at the end of time when the day of judgment comes? You will see Jesus. That's who will be there. And he will be asking you, what decision did you make about him? What decision did you make about his father? Did you trust in him or did you keep trusting in yourself? And in light of that, Paul says, repent, get ready, turn back, because God is the God of judgment. He is the Almighty. But even in this discourse, the logic is this. He's, Paul's saying, no, but don't believe it yet. Don't, don't, don't move yet. Don't do anything yet. Because he hasn't really laid out yet the really big reason to believe anything at all about the God of the Bible. And then he gets to it in the second sentence in verse 31. Here is the reason. Because he is the God of resurrection. First of Jesus Christ. The true God has power over life and death. And he wants to give us life in relationship with him. That is why he is father. 
That is why he is father. Just that second part of verse 31, Acts chapter 17, verse 31. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Um, why, why would you believe anything at all? Uh, Ros helpfully asked that question right at the start of our time together today. Why believe anything at all? And in particular, why would you privilege Christianity? Well, this is the reason. The proof, the evidence, the data for Christianity is the resurrected Jesus. Do you remember Peter? Um, perhaps the disciple who knew Jesus the best and publicly betrayed him in the, in the grossest of ways. He says this at the beginning of his first letter, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then in Acts chapter 2, we find him preaching, saying, um, we know that God raised this Jesus to life. And you can read this in Acts chapter 2, 29 to 32. God raised this Jesus to life. We are all witnesses of it. So what transforms a guy like Peter, who was a fan of Jesus and then a betrayer of Jesus, to be a proclaimer of Jesus? It's the resurrection of Jesus, which breaks the cycle of death for sin which evidences that the God of the Bible, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the living and true God, and it's him who is worthy of trust and obedience. That's the reason to have confidence in the God of the Bible. Now, that's the basis for believing anything at all. That's the reason, actually, for entertaining Christianity. That's the reason, ultimately, for trusting Christ as Lord. Now, here is what the resurrection of Jesus actually shows us about the Father, another aspect. The resurrection of Jesus shows God to be Abba because he first restores relationship with Jesus. How wonderful is that? The Father and the Son are reunited in the resurrection of Jesus and in Jesus' ascension. So relationship is not cut off by death for sin, but reunited in close connection with the Father. Now, here's the third thing to note off the back of that. The resurrection of Jesus makes it possible for God to be our Father because faith in the risen Jesus means we can be adopted as his children. Refer you to Romans chapter 8. But with the Spirit of God in us because of our trust in Christ... It makes it possible to be connected to the God of the universe like no one else can offer, like no other religion offers, like nobody else can absolutely propose. It is intimate connection with the Father. I remember a moment, I don't know whether it was something that I've dreamed and remembered through a family photograph or was a genuine memory, but it was when I was quite small. We were living in Campbelltown, and uh, we were, my parents were building a house in a suburb called Bradbury. And we went to visit it uh, one day, I think as it was nearing completion, and I have this memory of being carried just on one, the one arm of my father. And I just remember the, the feeling of how, how reassuring that was, that he was strong enough and cared enough actually to do that, but also I think the feeling of the potential of that strength 
Also for powerful, angry acts, maybe, if I, if I hadn't been obedient. But I, I, th- I think in the image that we have of the father and the son relating and reconnecting, which is also what we can be part of by faith in the son and therefore be connected to the father, is like that. The power of God which cradles us and brings us into life and into connection and relationship with him forever. Because the God of resurrection wants you to have life and relationship with him. You are his offspring, made for family, and he has made it possible to return home. (laughs) Not only is that good, but it's just a wonderful combination of things, isn't it? We believe in God, the Father, almighty, creator of heaven and earth. (laughs) Wow. That's so large and so good. I want to conclude now by asking you, who will you believe? This is my last point. Because at the end of Paul's discourse... um, Some people really are riled up by this thought of resurrection because the Greeks hated the thought of the flesh and the body. And what they were hoping for was the separation of the flesh and the spirit to be free. And what Paul says, no, no, it's in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that we actually have evidence and hope. And so some of them respond by saying, we'd like to hear you more, and others reject him. And some of those who want to hear more, they actually do trust the message that Paul has the God that he is presenting them, the Lord of life, Jesus Christ. And we believe because the cycle of death for sin has been broken in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to check in on what we believe because not all ideas are the same. And our human tendency is to keep putting anything in God's place. So on that first Point, not all ideas and proposals are the same. I want to read you something that I've just read recently by Rebecca McLaughlin. And she writes this in her book, 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity. Um, I love reading books that are aimed at a teenage audience because they're simpler and it works well in my mind. Um, so I want to recommend this book to you, actually. Um, Rebecca McLaughlin, 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity. But she, she writes this. While there is sometimes overlap between the moral teaching of different religious traditions, different religions teach different things. In 1948, an international committee published the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was meant to be a basic moral code that people of all different religions could agree to uphold. But some majority Muslim countries would not agree to it. And in 1982, Iran's representative, Saeed Khorasani, complained that the declaration was a secular understanding of the Judeo-Christian tradition that could not be implemented by Muslims. So not all ideas and beliefs are the same. And we need to keep being discerning with the Bible open. Certainly, only one offers life and hope in a resurrected saviour. But lastly, the other danger is that we put other things in God's place. And this certainly was the practice of idolatry in Athens. Now, Tim Keller says in his book, Counterfeit Gods, it's not as though many of us these days are making kind of little idols and statues and setting them up to worship them. But he says this about the human tendency and our contemporary situation. The human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possession, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. 
our hearts deify them as the centre of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfilment if we attain them. Anything in life can serve as an idol, a God alternative, a counterfeit. I knew a woman who had experienced periods of poverty as she grew up. As an adult, she was so eager for financial security that she passed over many good prospective relationships in order to marry a wealthy man she really did not love. This led to an early divorce and to all the economic struggles she feared so much. What is an idol? Well, it's anything more important to you than God. It absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Um, And here is a bit of a test that Keller um, provides in his book. Look at your most uncontrollable emotions. Are you scared? What is that thing deep down um, that threatens you and that you deem essential um, when it's not in the right place? Fear. Um, Are you down on yourself? What is it um, that you feel like you've lost or failed at? And what is that thing that's so essential that makes you down on yourself when you don't have it? Are you overworking? Um, What is this thing that you have to have to be fulfilled and significant? And, And he asks to round it out, has something or someone besides Jesus Christ taken title to your heart's functional trust preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight. To who or what are you looking for stability and security and acceptance? Because the answer will show us whether it's God in Christ or not. And the solution is to look more deeply at him. That's why we actually say the creed each week. It's a helpful corrective. It's a great reminder. We say it individually, but we also say it together. We remind ourselves of God and put our trust in him. Of course, the words are not magic. But when the Spirit helps us see what we're saying in the Bible, then applies them to our hearts, the resurrected life Jesus offers through faith in his ransoming death brings about trust in him and puts everything else in its place. Please join me and let's pray that that would be the case. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand that you alone are the creator, you're our creator, that you alone are almighty in judgment and you've established your judge in the Lord Jesus. And we ask you to help us to understand that you are father of the Lord Jesus and of us as you've adopted us now by faith in him and put your spirit in us to unite us to you. Please show us, Father, where we have put alternatives in your place. And we ask, Lord God, that as we look upon the Lord Jesus, his power and his love and his grace would overpower anything else that we're trusting and putting in his place. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.